Forever Footy. We're on the Big 550 KTRS. Thank you for joining us, everybody. I got Matt Baker on the line here. Uh, Matt, how's it going, man? Phil, it's great. <laughs> I mean, we're we're still in first place. We're one game away from League's Cup. Uh, the loss is behind us. We're looking forward. We're going to look back briefly, but we're looking forward. It's it's a great time to be a City fan. It's an exciting time to talk soccer, like always. Happy to be here with you tonight. Happy to be with you as well. I've been off for a week or two. You've been having to pull double duty as the uh, host and uh, the guy giving us all the, the facts around here. But it is good to be back. And uh, thanks for assisting me on that one. Um, we always start the show talking about the previous game. And in this case, I think we're going to dig into LAFC, especially since that happened last night, as far as the day that we're recording for the podcast itself. And... Um, you know, if you want to hear massive details, tune in for Flyover Fallout for previous games. This week, it's not going to go over LAFC per se or the game before it. I don't know how you guys structure it, but you guys do go into more detail about the previous games, and they come out on Monday. So do listen to that. Uh, but Matt, um, why don't you give us a couple of takes about what you thought about the game last night? I mean, yeah, and if, if anybody's listening to us on the Big 550 KTRS, tune into our podcast for a little more expanded edition. We're going to go deep into some of the things we usually cover on Flyover Fallout. But, you know, when you come away with a 3 nothing loss, surface level, it, it's doom and gloom. Things are bad. And you don't really want to, to spend too much time, dwell on things a lot. But there were some notable takeaways that could, involve, it could really carry forward um, worth noting. Uh, this was a very rotated match, first and foremost. I think everybody saw the starting 11. There were a lot of different takes on Facebook, on Twitter, just on social media about what is going on here. Are we completely punting this game? Some of the same takes you've seen in previous rotated matchups. The San Jose Earthquakes matchup comes to mind where you've seen the Josh Arrow, Keel Watts, AZ, and Sam get their first start, and suddenly we pull out the win. <laughs> so I see a rotated lineup that has John Bell getting his first start and first minutes in MLS besides a one-minute kind of sneak peek against Vancouver earlier this year. So our back line was completely new as far as they've never, the four man back line has never been together. Johnny Nelson's back in the lineup, John Bell, Lucas Bartlett, center backs, and Jake Nerwinski back in at right back. And then we had kind of a 4-2-2-2, I think, going on where you have Indiana Vasilev and Jabulu Blom as the dual six. You had uh, Celio Pompeo and Tomas Ostrak as the left and the right mids. And then you had Nico Joachini and Rasmus Alm up top. It was a return to the starting lineup for Alm. That was exciting to see. Return for Tomas Ostrak and Celio Pompeu, very exciting to see. The one kind of interesting note that I had, though, on this match, on this lineup, they were all together for the first time. This was the 20th different lineup in 22 games. But outside of John Bell and Celio Pompeu, nobody had less than nine starts going into this which is kind of interesting given the overall depth and rotation that we've seen throughout the year. It's just the first time that this unit really had been put together. And honestly, Phil, I saw a lot of good come out of them from the first 60 plus minutes, really until we started substituting. We had good pressing. We had gap closure by Joachini, Alm, Nelson, and Blome in particular. That's who I found noteworthy. Johnny Nelson had a really good game, for my opinion, on the left side. I thought he closed gaps appropriately. He pushed up when he needed to. Jabulu Blom was his usual cleaner stopper self in the midfield. Uh, the city uh, Twitter account and Facebook had a great highlight video to get today. Look it up. It has them just collapsing their midfield, blocking everything in sight, and just keeping the ball away from LAFC at all times. Nico Joachini and Rasmus Alm did some great jobs in initiating pressure. They were the ones who were, were forcing the, the 
everything on the press. They were forcing LAFC into some bad passes. They nearly had a few turnovers that led to goals, even though nothing really came of their shots. But it was really when the subs came on. It was the cohesion that was a lot different. And so when you take out John Bell, who Bradley Carnell said post-game, John Bell was never going to play the full 90. His hmm. style is very much more sprinter-oriented. So he, he closes space very quickly, and he's all out in that regard, not unlike Josh Yarrow, but to the umpteenth degree. And being his first start, Carnell knew that he wasn't going to come in, so I think Kyle Hebert was a prescribed sub. Unfortunately, Kyle Hebert had an off night, and there's no two ways to say that. There were There were... There's an argument to be made that all three goals were at least in some way attributable to actions that Hebert took directly or indirectly, whether it's going for a header at the same time as Lucas Bartlett, whether it's pressing too high up the field, too wide and getting caught where Johnny Nelson ended up being on the inside of Hebert tracking back or just in general getting bulldozed in the midfield in another transi transition goal. So those all three of those transitions killed us and the substitutes just didn't seem to have it in them to, to manage the game the way that our starters did. It was very reminiscent of Seattle in that regard where we lasted 72 minutes here and from then on it was just falling apart in transition. Yeah, and I want to kind of build on your thoughts there because um, I think you were kind of leaning into this too that you know I think a lot of people were talking about that punting on the lineup thing and I might have agreed about four or five months ago, but the fact that we've been that City's been playing without Lubin, without Klaus, and pulling out you know wins in, despite that uh, the with players you know team players no you know the designated team style thing has been working without our designated players and so now like i think there's a way that this team can play through this system that works and you know you look at this lineup and yeah someone maybe other teams maybe other styles might think yeah this was a, a punt on a lineup just to get through this game and you know play lafc for real perhaps in the playoffs um, and in the next game. Um, well, I disagree with that just because I do think Bradley Carnell has faith in everyone on this roster. He's said it before, and I know that sounds like coach speak, but I think he means it. Um, you know, again, you look at the wins in the last few weeks, it looks like almost anyone in this, in this team on this roster can be put into the lineup and put on a good show. And I think that happened against LAFC, you know, arguably our worst players based on minutes based on you know who has been playing throughout the year and starting throughout the year um, was in for the first 60 minutes and I think they like you said Matt I think they did a good job controlling this game and I almost thought that Bradley Carnell came into this game with a plan yes we'll rotate we'll get through the first 60 minutes and then we're going to start playing players with fresh legs we're going to attack LAFC higher up the pitch we're going to throw in Leuven and start you know seeing if that can uh, give us some pay off some dividends against LAFC and perhaps I don't know exactly uh, what happened but perhaps the pushing harder up the field uh, lent to better transition play for LAFC, leaving us more vulnerable in the back. Maybe, maybe not. My other thought is that perhaps LAFC tried to go at us like they normally do, possessing the ball, trying to get through us, playing through the middle, playing through the, the, the wings, uh, depending on the play. And they just decided they needed to adjust. They needed to, you know, 
play the transition for the rest of the game. They looked like France from minute 60 on to the end of the game, and it worked really well for them because that style of play works well against St. Louis City, in my opinion. So, um, you know, I don't fault Bradley Carnell. In fact, I think he came into this game with a nice plan, and it just backfired against a really, really good team, a really well-coached team on top of that, in my opinion, in this game. And I'm excited to see the rematch because I I think it's going to be totally different than, than what we saw last night. Yeah, and and I'm excited to kind of dig into this one a little after we preview Miami for our podcast. But end of the day, this was a team that's at the top of the table for a reason, given all of their fixture congestion. And so they have the depth, just like we do, to say, okay, uh, Bogus isn't working out. We're going to mm-hmm. put in we're going to put in Buick, and he's just going to run the table on us, scoring himself a goal. Um, Denny Bowanga is just doing Denny Bowanga things. Mm-hmm. Jose Cifuentes is. Uh, managing things from the midfield all their pieces fell into place eventually and i do think that we forced a little adaptation on their side which is something that we do well when we have success in the first 60 70 minutes is we force teams to adapt and the best teams adapt well when we can continue dominating is when those adaptations don't work well and we see that from some of the lower table teams mid table teams that aren't able to adjust to what we're throwing at them lafc they leveraged quick transitions as opposed to transition and pulling back into possession. So they they went more all out in their efforts on those individual moments. But it's not like they overly controlled every single aspect. Don't forget they only had three shots on goal yeah. with their three goals. This wasn't a team that was peppering us at all, all chances. Berkey wasn't being threatened every single minute. One ball went off the crossbar. These were just very, very uh, individual moments that they took advantage of, and they made us pay in those transitions where they had numbers, they had overloads, and they didn't stop when they saw an opening. Yeah, I think if, if the team was to be faulted in the first half onto the 60th minute, I think it's offensively. I think that's where perhaps yeah. City did actually look bad, and I think they're they're in for a little bit of critique there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't. Did you have something on that? No, that, that's one of the things we're going to touch on later on, but it's, it's Edu Leuven's appearance and what he did in the game. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's too much to talk about right now, but yeah. that, there's a lot that it went into his positioning and what we saw from him as well as Sam Adeneron and even AZ Jackson when he came in and how they weren't able to be effective like we had seen Sam and AZ in the past few games. Some of them, I think, is just this as a microcosm of LAFC and what they have. And there are a certain few teams in MLS that are elite tier, no matter where you where you are in the season. And LAFC is one of those teams. And so this was a measuring stick in a Mm -hmm. way. And it's a good it's a good down to earth reality check in between these matches that we've had, where we face a Colorado Rapids, a Toronto FC who are bottom of the table. Then we play LAFC and we get that reality check. And now we get an opportunity to go forward to the worst team in the East and enter Miami and and understand that it's not just powerhouse St. Louis City. It's we can be beat. We were just beat. Now we have to prove ourselves once again. Absolutely. And yeah, it's it's a rough match, but it's not the end of the world. We're going to get into that more than once in this episode. But, you know, I think we've been pretty positive about this 3-0 loss. Uh, the one bad thing I will say is that we've been pretty high on games when Bloom starts and on plays. 
And I think this is the first one that kind of maybe, um, you know, poked holes in, in that possible theory or, st- or correlation, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. My stats took a hit on this one. <laughs> I wasn't. No, it wasn't just you. I saw a lot of people <laughs> saying that that's not at all a, a dig on you. But, you know, it's just something that occurs to me weekly as I, I watch that kind of happening. So um, but there's a lot of news that happened this week. We're going to move on past this game and start talking about the next one. Uh, Matt, can you lead us into some player news, perhaps? A little bit of good news, I think, at this point. So we saw Leuven returned against LAFC, and that's the big one that we've been waiting for. We knew that he was ahead of Joachim Nilsson, ahead of Klaus. And so to see Edu Leuven return against LAFC after missing five games where City did go 3-2-0 while he was out, we had a minus one goal differential. So we were able to put together some wins there. But there's no team that wouldn't want an Edu Leuven on their squad in the starting lineup right now. So to have him mm-hmm. play the the few minutes that he was able 21 plus that's just fantastic to see and we look to see that growing so a start isn't out of the question against inter miami given that prescribed load that we expect him to have so he could go a half he could go 55 or 60. that'll be interesting to see how his body responds this week so be on the lookout for edu Leuven to get more time against inter miami unfortunately though klaus still no updates on return timetable the four weeks has really dwindled, and so now we're looking at League's Cup and hoping that something positive comes after that, I think. Whereas Joachim Nilsson, we're still looking at those last comments from Lute saying we'd likely see him after League's Cup, but the previous timetable also has expired to the point where he's progressed enough to travel to the team as they went to Toronto and LAFC, but he didn't make the game day roster in either. So it is not out of the realm of possibility that we could see him in the game day roster against inter miami however outside chances are on that one but we might look to him during league's cup to see action i think that would be an interesting time in that cup match that cup tournament to give joachim nilsson a few minutes and see how he can run out there in preparation for the back half of the MLS season. Yeah, I hope that happens actually, because I, you know, I just would like to get him a, a practice session and against good competition, so that would be kind of fun. Uh, but the other thing about that is it's really interesting when the team travels and trains an entire week in other cities like they don't come back yeah. home to train so yeah i thought that was really interesting i was thinking like i wonder what extra players they brought just to be able to train abroad that they know aren't going to play but they had to bring them or even like backups in case someone gets injured they're ready to go i don't know it was an interesting uh, thing that they got to deal with as far as travel like that well in this one they had the benefit of running into city two who had just played la galaxy two yeah. this past weekend and so you're having that ability to have maybe guys like Pedro or Isak Jensen who are at the ready in case something happens. And and so it was nice to be able to have that flexibility, even though they didn't really need to utilize it. Yeah, pretty cool. And the, the other really big thing this week, Phil, is we've been trying to introduce a transfer window rumors section here in the show. And so we're not going to go too deep because nothing really happened this week as far as the rumor discussion. We talked last week about Conrado and uh, Nuke V. Thorson, the rumors from the Brazilian and Icelandic players who are rumored to be uh, in discussions with St. Louis City at various steps of negotiation. This week, it was the opposite. We're hearing rumors now that after the past few matches, AZL Jackson is garnering a lot of interest from teams in Europe. Manuel Veth has an, a great article on Transfermarkt about the the uh, just eyes that are being put on AZ Jackson at this point, knowing his age at 21, knowing all of the potential and talent that he's really been able to display. We're talking Villarreal from La Liga. We're talking Paderborn and Hanover from the two Bundesliga and Bayer Leverkusen from Bundesliga showing interest in AZ Jackson. 
what St. Louis paid for him was pretty nominal, $150,000 transfer fee to Minnesota United. The big deal for him, though, is going to be Minnesota United gets a 20% sell-on sell fee for any outgoing transfer. So if, if you're watching the AZL transfer window rumors or outgoing discussions, be on the lookout for a, a high cost that St. Louis would be asking of him if they mm -hmm. were to let him go at this point. Otherwise, let's hope to keep him on our roster for the rest of the season, at least. Yeah, and, and I wonder if that sell-on fee becomes kind of a normal thing when they know that Lutz is at the end of that sell-on. You know, like there's a good chance this guy's going to be able to sell this guy for a bigger price than, than we would. And it makes yep. sense for someone like Minnesota who, you know, they're not that active on, on selling players out like I think St. Louis will be. So this, that's such a fun one to see at the beginnings of that. Um, Matt, should we move on to previewing the next game? It's a big one. Let's do it. It, it is and it one. isn't, right? It, it is, it is. And we'll tell you why it's a big one and tell you everything you need to know. So let's let's set the stage, Phil. St. Louis playing Inter-Miami at home this week. St. Louis is still in first place in the West going into this with 38 points through 22 games. Now holding a 12-8-2 record, 12 wins, 8 losses, 2 draws, with 40 goals scored and a plus 13 goal differential. St. Louis is still 7-3-1 at home. Last three from St. Louis had that three nothing midweek loss against LAFC, but before that, the three game three game win streak, one nothing at Toronto, uh, two nothing at Colorado most recently, and then Inter Miami. There's a lot to be said about Inter Miami and what's about to happen to them, but most of that doesn't matter in the slightest in this matchup this weekend. The Inter Miami team that we're going to play is definitely 15th and last place in the East with 18 points through 21 games. They hold a 5-13-3 record with just 22 goals scored and a minus 11 goal differential, which is third worst in the league to our previous wins, Colorado and Toronto. Mm. Uh, Inter-Miami holds a 1-8-1 away record. Both of their wins this year, uh, well, really, Inter-Miami, from their away record, it's we have to look to the beginning of the season in how they, they made some of that happen. Their last three, their form in MLS matches have all been draws. Last weekend, a 2-2 draw at D.C. United, 2-2 draw at home against Columbus Crew before that, and a 1-1 draw at home against Austin FC. Their last win was May 13th against the New England Revolution. That was their third of a three-game winning streak. Keep that May time frame in mind. Miami has just two clean sheets this entire year. Their first two games on February 25th and March 4th, which are the fewest in the league for clean sheets. And in their last three road games, Miami has allowed a total of nine goals with a minus five goal differential. I'm really excited to get to what all that could lead to with all the stories coming on. Uh, but first, we have a bit about the player availability for us and for uh, Miami. If there's one thing you could look at for this Inter-Miami team, aside from what's about to happen, aside from Messi and, and Busquets and any other rumored players that might be joining them, it is the bad luck that they've had in how they've constructed this roster in what I believe is anticipation for Lionel Messi. Gregor, Franco Negri, Jean Moda, and Quarantin Jean are all out with at least four to six month injuries, if not full season injuries. These are massive contributors for them. Gregor with Alice Frank, he's out at least six months from the middle of May. Franco Negri is out for the season with an ACL injury. Jean Moda with an LCL out at least four to six months from May 4th. Quarantin Jean, ACL injury, out for the season. These guys are, if not the biggest pieces of the puzzle in how their attacks and, and defensive structures have been designed around, uh, then they're, they're massive, massive pieces. 
because especially uh, looking at Mota and Gregor, those guys are the linchpins of their defense. And we're going to talk about their involvement in why Inter Miami has struggled so much this season. Um, that's that's a that's a huge loss, and that explains a little bit of what their issues are. And they're going to look to right the ship without a lot of those key pieces that their entire systems were structured around. And the one way that they're doing this that actually could impact the city matchup this weekend is new coach Tata Martino, who is coaching this weekend against St. Louis City in his debut ahead of Messi's uh, debut or unveiling with the club the day after. So Tata Martino has been brought in to replace Phil Neville. He managed Messi and Sergio Busquets at Barca from 13-14 and Messi with Argentina from 14-16. Martino won MLS Cup, if anyone remembers, with Atlanta United back in 2018 before departing for the Mexican national team. So he has not only familiarity with the players that Inter-Miami is about to bring on, but he has familiarity with MLS. And so this isn't just a guy who has European, South American influences and relationships. This is a guy with a lot of MLS credentials. And so having him join Inter-Miami is the one thing that really gives me pause in saying, I can't find any reason why St. Louis City shouldn't dominate this. Yeah. We know from experience, Phil, what a new coach bump can give a team. Yeah, new coach bump. And, you know, when that new coach is Tata Martino, then, like, it's even more so because, like you said, this guy just won the MLS Cup. I think it was his second year uh, coaching. And it was, mm. I think it was Atlanta's second year of existence. I could be wrong about that. But that's right. The man knows how to win in MLS. I think the only, you know, that has me, I'm getting jitters just thinking about it because I think he is going to start whipping Miami into shape. I think we're lucky that he hasn't had much time with them. Uh, and, also, perhaps in our favor, is that he wasn't always good with Atlanta. And we've seen how much Atlanta has uh, had a slide, um, you know, leading up to about, you know, three to four months ago. I think they're starting to get their feet back under them. But they have been really bad. And it's been mostly because of player, you know, mismanagement as far as uh, the general manager signing the wrong players and players not working out, having to sell guys to Europe too. Um, that, that didn't help them losing those players. Jose Martinez, um, you know, being out for a long time, all those things combined. But Miami, like you said, Matt, and this will lead us to a lot of the, the ideas we're going to talk about today. Uh, they're hurting pretty badly for talent. So perhaps, you know, as good, as much of a wizard Tata can be in MLS, you know, he doesn't have a, an amazing team to work with, at least not this week, right? Yeah, and, and this week, too, there's a lot of off-the-field stuff going on, obviously. The the messy unveiling almost goes without saying, but we need to say it. it we, we play Inter-Miami on Saturday, and there's a an unveiling event. It's called the Unveil mm. that's scheduled for Sunday at 7 p.m., which is the same time as the Gold Cup. It's likely to get halftime coverage for them. They're working out some kind of an arrangement. But along with that, Inter-Miami is adding 3,000 stands to their Drive Pink Stadium, hoping to be done by July 21st, Messi's debut. All of this off-the-field stuff is going on around the club. And so the players, as much as they are going to try and, and put, this, put this aside or look at the here and now and not against Cruz Azul on the 21st, you know it's in their minds. You know that there's something about the excitement, the anticipation about what's to come. It's the, can they focus and can Tata really get them hmm. honed in on this match against City? Because so far, they haven't been able to stay honed in on anything. This team just doesn't score, Phil. Their leading goal scorer is Joseph Martinez with six goals. 
Nico Giochini has eight goals, if that tells you anything about comparisons here. Their fellow forward and Ecuadorian young uh, designated player, Leo Campana, has four. So Martinez with six, Campana with four, one in his last eight MLS matches. So these, these are guys who are not in great form as far as scoring goals, especially Campana. The only other player with more than one goal on their team is Robert Taylor, if that tells you anything about the rest of their team scoring. No idea. Couldn't tell you. Key players for Inter-Miami are their designated player trio. So prior to the Messi deal, Miami already had their three designated players. They had Rodolfo Pizarro, they had Leo Campana, and they had Gregor. Mentioned that Gregor is out. He has nothing to do with this game. Uh, Leo Campana, we talked about his goal scoring ability. But Rodolfo Pizarro is the one who's been in the news, in the negative for Inter-Miami because they're trying to move him. And this has just been, it's been one of those really unfortunate MLS stories where the writing is on the wall of what they need to do to fit Messi and Busquets into the roster with guys like Gregor and Leo Campana because they're both DPs. They're both staying on the on the team. One of them is going to be bought down, probably Gregor, trying to buy down Campana. We'll, we'll see if that works. Pizarro is the odd man out and has been for weeks, and he's known it. MLS allows you to move a player without their approval. We saw that happen with Atlanta and Toronto this week, and it's unfortunate the, the way this has played out, but... As of today, we're recording this on a Thursday. It sounds like Rodolfo Pizarro has a deal in the works with AK Athens on a two-year deal with an option for a third to be moved. It's not outside the realm of possibility that because that is supposedly done, we won't even see Pizarro in the lineup. And that's that's a, a big blow because even though he has no goals and just one assist, he's, only, he's one of two players on their team with more than 20 key passes. Hmm. He's a contributor in making their anemic offense happen when it can score goals and so his not having him along with the injuries that they've had the focus being elsewhere the only thing to me they have going for them is tata martino and anything he might be able to draw out of this squad but there's just so much going on with them yeah something's going around with the whole team it's interesting with uh pizarro i think i read that they agreed to buy out his contract so i'm really curious the the rule that you put out there matt i didn't know that they're allowed to just kick a guy off once a season that's interesting yeah so apparently the latest that i've heard is it's a termination of his contract oh so okay Pardon every me. year a team is allowed to buy out one designated player and, and clear them off the books this is apparently a mutual termination of the contract hmm. so they will still have that uh, mechanism available but it's just one of those wonky things that that you don't ever want to have to go through with a player and you don't ever you don't you don't want your own team to go through it even in trying to build for something better it's just dirty and it's something i hope never actually comes to fruition with st louis yeah. and if you're looking for a bright side of the frugal spending the looking for the diamonds in the rough it's probably not having to go through this with your players. Yeah, I don't know if that's something we're going to have to uh, worry about at all. But uh, yeah. really good stuff from you, Matt. I really enjoy all the deep dives that you gave us today. And that's what you can expect from us on the Big 550 KTRS. We're flyover footy and we go deep. We get you the nerdy facts and uh, Matt is the head of that. And so, um, you know, we don't say it enough, but KTRS really does have the best lineup of St. Louis City coverage. There's like, what, five shows, four or five shows, and every week you're getting tons of soccer content. Matt's on another show as well. And so, you know, I hope you guys are keying into that. You can check out every replay of every show on their app. Um, so go look in those places if you'd like to hear anything about St. Louis City, if you're just trying to catch up. That's probably the easiest and best place to do it. And, you know, you're listening to 45 minutes of, you know, basically an hour 
15 minute show or more sometimes uh, that is a podcast. So if you would like to hear even more, a little more laid back talk in our wind down portion at the end of our show that doesn't air on the radio, you can find Flyover Footy on anywhere you get your podcast. So please do that. Leave a review if you're up for it. We'd appreciate it. It, it does help us. Uh, but I think we got a few more storylines to hear, Matt, before we uh, move on to um, playing style and whatever else we can fit in here. <laughs> yeah, strengths and weaknesses are important to know for Inter-Miami because we've talked about their anemic offense. We've talked about their defense kind of being a little suspect. But why is their defense in suspect and what do they really have to offer? So looking at their strengths, Inter-Miami is strong at shooting from direct free kicks, creating long shot opportunities, creating chances through some individual high effort from Pizarro, uh, from Joseph Martinez with his finishing ability. Don't forget what he was able to do with Atlanta. He's still roaming in their attacking third. They, they can protect the lead when they get it, and they're good at intercepting and stealing the ball. This might be related to kind of where they position themselves, but they're not good at finishing their scoring opportunities. They're not good at stopping opponents from creating high high percentage chances and defending against some of those counterattacks and set pieces. They're very weak against aerial duels. And these are the three things, counterattacks, set pieces, aerial duels, that if St. Louis City needs to be strong in certain aspects, it's actually these three areas. The things that Inter-Miami is the weakest in are the things that really drive the St. Louis City offense. And so that's a huge opportunity. And one of the keys to the game that I'll touch on in a little while is winning these aerial duels over Miami enabling a lot of our transition offense by winning these 50-50s that get sent out by Berkey or Parker or Hebert. Those are those are how we can start a lot of our transition moments. But Inter-Miami in general, the way that their season has unfolded, Phil, I think is worth kind of looking at because it tells the tale of where they are coming into this and why they are in the place that they are. So they had two Brazilians, Gregor and John Moda, anchoring their squad in the midfield. They brought them in with the intention of shoring up their midfield in anticipation of getting messy, right? They've built their squad initially around a a lack of a playmaker in which Messi can fill. And so building around this compact defending was very intentional. So heading into the year, no creative midfielder. They looked for Messi in this area, but they knew that their first way to get success was by disciplined defending. And when they, they didn't step too far forward in those first couple of games, they didn't get overexposed. They let some of those veteran midfielders like Gregor and Moda do some of the work. Miami's only sustained success this entire year has been with Gregor and Moda on the field. Their mixture of their defensive range and their capable ball progression. And those first two games of the season in which Miami scored four goals, they allowed zero. They were averaging 46% possession. They got six points out of those two games. That's the highlight of their season so far. According to FB Ref, which is one of my favorite resources of all time, Miami allows more goals per 90 than all but four teams in MLS at 1.48. 1.48 goals per 90. Bodes extremely well for a St. Louis City offense that has a penchant for three, four, five goal games. Their, Miami's non-penalty expected goals per 90 is higher than any team in MLS. So not looking at the PKs they allow, they're just the worst defending team in expected goals. They give up so many high percentage shots. And then that's all of those defensive issues have been prevalent because of the lack of Gregor and Moda. So without them, they're kind of their defense has fallen apart. Striking wise, their attacking numbers, Leo Campana, Joseph Martinez, they've been able to they've been able to get some some balls on net early, but without relying on some good service to score those goals without the capable playmakers that Gregor Moda can can bring. 
Those two only have a combined eight goals and are averaging the lowest number of touches in the box in recorded MLS careers for both. These guys are not getting service from anywhere. So no matter how good Joseph Martinez or Campana are, if they can't get the ball in and they can't receive, because they're not going to play make themselves. They're just going to be those, those Klaus type players if you think about what St. Louis City has. If they're not going to get service, they're not going to do anything and they haven't been getting service. Hmm. And so Miami's lack of central players has really hurt them more than anything else. And so there's this gaping hole of talent in their midfield, but there's also some real tactical issues facing the team right now. And so defensively, Inter-Miami tries to be very proactive. They like to press high. They like to defend in a mid block so they don't set up like a Minnesota or like a Seattle has the tendency to in a low block. They like to set up inside their their the, inside the middle of the field and then press when they need to. But they're not good at controlling space, starting the attacks after they move forward to win that. They're eighth in MLS right now in PPDA. I, I've been talking about this Your stat. Favorite. It's my favorite stat. I've been talking about it for weeks now at least. So it just measures the how many passes a team allows outside of their defensive third before they engage and they make a move. Inter-Miami, like I said, eighth in MLS right now in that with 11.1. St. Louis City leads the league in that. So eighth is pretty high in how often Inter-Miami likes to engage the ball outside of their defensive third. However, Miami is tied for last with New England for fewest, fewest shots created from that with just 15. And New England's 19th in PPDA, so they're not a pressing team. But Miami having just 15 shots created from those high turnovers and only one goal scored this entire season shows me that they're not effective in doing that in the slightest bit. They have a tendency to leave huge gaps between players when they move up and try to press, and they leave themselves very exposed, very undermanned in the central midfield. That's a huge opportunity for St. Louis, because a lot of the times in the past few weeks, St. Louis has found success moving the ball through the midfield where you have Jabulu Blom finding AZ Jackson. Keep those two players in mind because when you see stats like this and when you see progressions like Inter-Miami in their midfield and their vulnerability in space, that's where St. Louis has a huge opportunity. Looking to Inter-Miami's attack, Miami missing this main playmaker, missing this, this person who can deliver service, this messy-like person that they're going to be getting is a massive problem. So I mentioned how Martinez and Campana haven't gotten that, but this is a team without Messi, and so they're not going to have that going into St. Louis. Huge issue for them. And regardless of whether they're playing out of a back four, back three, how they organize their defensive shape, Miami moves the ball at a very, very slow rate. We also like to talk on this show about um, directness up on the field, how quickly you're moving the ball vertically, and how many passes per sequence you actually have. Miami is, in moving the ball up the field, the second slowest speed in all of MLS. Mm. Uh, at 1.15 meters per second. So it's the second lowest, according to my another one of our favorite tools, Opta. And the way that they they move the ball horizontally is one of the is second, uh, second most passes per sequence. And so this is a team that likes to press. They like to move the ball around. They like to control the ball, and they don't set up in a low block. There are opportunities galore for St. Louis to be feasting on some of what Inter-Miami has to offer because St. Louis is still the most direct. They still have the second fewest passes per sequence. The, the, the expected goals against from Miami in open play is the worst in all of MLS. They are expected to allow the most goals in MLS if you're looking at the stats. They have the worst expected goals in open play, so they're expected to not score in the run of play. The stats add up to an Inter-Miami team that is so desperate for Messi and has been dealt such a bad card with their injuries that 
it explains to a T why they're in the position that they are so far, but why there is hope on the horizon, that hope just comes after St. Louis. Yeah, I'm hearing a lot of dilemmas, too, because, you know, it's interesting to see what I think the biggest storyline here is going to be like Tata coming in. And what is he going to do with those stats that you just brought in? Because pressing, sure, I think Martino likes to press. I think that's something they're going to continue to utilize. But controlling the ball and using a million passes to get a goal is not something that Atlanta did necessarily um, when Tata was was in charge of them. Um, But, you know, they did have Joseph Martinez. Pardon me, I said Jose earlier, but Joseph Martinez. uh, But he was getting crosses from really quality players on the outside. And so, man, I'm just so interested to see how Tata sets up in this one, whether they'll play faster. If they don't, I really do think, as I often say against teams like this, St. Louis will feast on on that kind of uh, game plan, even yeah, no matter who's playing. <laughs> and I mentioned that they had a 48% possession their first couple matches where they were just they were on top of the world. Since then, they've regressed down to 53% possession. They do like to dominate that possession. Hold on. I love that you just said regressed to 53% from 40-something. That's amazing. That, that just shows how long you've been a St. Louis fan here, but please do continue. That's fair. Regressing. <laughs> anything about 50% at this point is regression to me, especially when you, when you fall into the form that Miami has. I don't like to – I've, I've adopted and fallen so hard into the, the frenetic style of play, get, get rid of the ball, I don't want it. I, yeah. you know, I love it. Uh, But where can we look for Miami to actually move the ball? So Miami likes to dominate possession between the channels up to midfield. So those channels are basically the areas outside the 18-yard box to the left and to the right and in. So they dominate the possession between the channels up to midfield from from their defensive end. And they continue to dominate the possession out on the wings. So they like to move the ball up and then they get the ball out wide near the end line even. So they've got greater than 50% possession all the way down the Hmm. wings in their attacking third. It's very abnormal for teams in the league. The only area that they really seed possession percentages is in their opponent's defensive third between the channels. So that opposite end from where they love to have the ball and move the ball out of. This is where you can expect uh, Berkey, Parker, Hebert, Bartlett, whoever's in our our back three there to to start the progressions for St. Louis. I don't expect St. Louis to control possession beyond that portion of the field. So basically play to what Inter-Miami has played to the entire season because they've been so ineffective at that game plan. And so if you can just control the ball in your own defensive third, have Parker, have Berkey, really send the ball where it needs to go and then quickly move it. Don't hold the ball in any one space. Don't, mm-hmm. uh, don't really control the ball or progress it individually up the field. Leverage your quick passes, take shots, win those aerial duels, and then move the ball up the field quickly. I wouldn't even mind if we our game plan was to use AZ Jackson as the point man again to move the ball up and get Blome and AZ Jackson moving the ball up so that you might have some chances to create outside to an Alm or a Stroud in getting the ball sent in for service. But those those key pieces and those key places in their central midfield that are so weak can be so well exposed by Jamulu exactly. Blom and AZ Jackson. Yeah, I love that. I love that thought about, you know, we know what AZ can do in space, in the middle of the field, and the fact that that's where they're at their most weak because of losses, of injury. Um, I love that idea. I think the other thing that you said that, that kind of appeals to me, we've been talking about in the last few weeks about who's going to be our, you know, fullbacks going forward. We've had a lot of rotation in those in those positions lately, whereas, you know, our mainstay, Nerwinski, uh, hasn't been 
playing. We've seen Akil Watts in those positions. Will Hebert play left back after Nelson? Like, I agreed what you said. I thought he had a really good game against LAFC, which I think is a nice change from the, you know, the last few games that he's started. And so um, if Miami's trying to take the ball to the end line on the wings, what will our fullbacks look like in those situations? And will we be relying on Blome to run his butt off to the end line every single counterattack? Or, you know, will our uh, center backs be having uh, forced out wide? Will Akilt have to tra- track back, which is something that he hasn't had to do quite as much as Nerwinski? All these thoughts come to mind, but it's it's good that we're thinking about this thanks to you bringing up that wrinkle in their tactics. Yeah, and I, I just remember the last few games that Johnny Nelson started um, – there was a noticeable, and I think it was in the FC Dallas match, um, or, or Vancouver, one of the two, but it was noticeable in how much space he was allowing uh, wing, wingers to get really inside and deep. Down to the end line was very exposed hmm. on our left-hand side. And that's the thing that gives me a little pause with a guy like Johnny Nelson being on the field, whereas Kyle Hebert, I think, can defend well and defend well back in yeah. 1v1s. Agree. Agree. Um, Great. We're getting to that point in the show where we should probably start our progressions. We kind of are leading into it by talking about what fullbacks are going to be playing in this game and what challenges they'll be viewing. But this is a big story. There was a highly rotated team against LAFC. And now we're looking at a Miami team that's not so good in comparison to LAFC. Uh, With the changes we've talked about, what on earth is this lineup going to be, Matt? My biggest question is Edu Leuven, mm. and not in what Leuven can bring, but how will Leuven be integrated with a lot of our more recent run-of-form players, mm. Akia Watts, AZ Jackson, Sam Adeneron. Uh, I, I don't think Josh Yarrow uh, is picked up for the starting 11 in this one. I think it goes back to Lucas Bartlett and Tim Parker. I wouldn't be surprised if Josh Yarrow does. I love Josh Yarrow on the field. His speed and his ability to play off of Tim Parker is really incredible. Mm. I love how Tim Parker can attack players 1v1 and then Josh Arrow kind of drops back or to the side to pick up the space left behind that that to me has worked so well so wouldn't mind to see Josh Arrow in there I, I could go either way on Bartlett or Yarrow they both offer interesting things but the thing in the midfield is where my really big key question is I do have Hebert on the left I do have Akil Watts on the right but is Leuven going to slide in at the 10 is he going to slide in in a dual six is he going to be uh, a piece of the diamond on, on the wings I, I don't know. And that's the biggest question that I, I couldn't get an answer out of Bradley Carnell after the game against LAFC. Maybe I asked it wrong, hmm. but I was trying to get at, he put Leuven in at the 10 when Indy Vasilev was in the game. And Indy Vasilev had had such success before AZ Jackson at the 10. He was the guy who, after Klaus left, we found success with a, with uh, Indy, Indiana Vasilev at the 10. So is, is Carnell going to drop Indy back to the six again? And we're going to have a four, two, three, one. I don't know. I think that um, my ideal lineup would have Kyle Hebert, Tim Parker, Lucas Bartlett, or Josh Garrow, and Akil Watts in the back line. Jabulu Blom, then Edu Leuven as more of that double pivot where you have Blom as a six, Leuven as the box-to-box. And then we have a, a three-man attacking mid of Jared Stroud, Indiana Vasilev, AZ Jackson, and Nico Joachini up top. I think that starting the game would give a lot of the, the versatility to the midfield that would allow us to move the ball up the field and progress it well, while still able to have Stroud and Vasilev defend on the wings to help out with Watts and Hebert in where Miami likes to move the ball. Having Blom progress to Leuven and AZ Jackson in the midfield would give us a whole lot of options and a whole lot of 
creativity up to Nico Joaquin. Mm. Yeah, all the questions you asked, um, you posed there are exactly the questions I've been wondering. I just know, I'm not sure what, how the team will set up. I think we might be seeing a 4-2-3-1 if Leuven starts. And I do think Leuven starts, and then you start building the team around that. I agree with you. I think Watts is going to come in again. I think Hebert will be at left back. If I had to argue about center backs in this one, I agree. I love that Yarrow has been so good. But I think when you have a Joseph Martinez starting, potentially, yeah. um, um, I think Bartlett might be a good teammate for that, that he can kind of tower yeah. over Joseph, who can be really sneaky about finding space at any given moment. And so, you know, the center backs are going to have to be really careful. Trust Parker to the end of the world with that. Uh, but I'm curious what, what his center back partner will be. I think my big thing will be AZ Jackson. I think I'd like to see AZ yep. at the 10. And so I'd rather see Leuven back there, and I'd like to see Blom in there as well. And so, you know, I'm interested to see. I think Alm will start. I think Stroud will start based on the previous game. And, um, you know, do we start Nico? I don't really care who starts between Nico and uh, Sam. But um, I think... So did you drop Indy? Yeah, I think Indy is the one that I dropped in my mind. And so the rest, I think, will just fall into place. I won't have any qualms with anything, but I think we're done with rotated squad. I think we play the best 11 we got at this given moment, which is hard for Bradley right now, isn't it? It's very hard, and it's very hard to identify because (laughs) Indiana Vasilev has been in good form. He hasn't had poor games. He hasn't had noteworthy goal-scoring opportunities. He's taken some good free kicks, but we also haven't seen a, a lineup that's featured AZ Jackson at his peak that he's progressed into along with an inform Eddie Leuven. So how are those two going to play on the field with a uh, Jabulu Blom and whoever the other midfielder is? That's a huge unknown. And can their cohesion carry forward just like the previous ones did with Blom, Stroud, uh, Indy and AZ there in the diamond midfield? Agree. Yeah, there's so many options, and I really look forward to seeing what Bradley picks, and I do think it's going to be a fun match no matter how it goes down. A lot of question marks that are going to be answered in this game, so look forward to this one. We're all out of time for now, but like I said, if you want to listen to the podcast, we talk for another 30 minutes or so about whatever comes to mind, and we fill that time with no difficulty at all, so please join us there. Otherwise, we are Flyover Footy. You're listening on the big 550 KTRS. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We'll talk to you next time. Go City. took a while to get ready for this one. I had to make some changes to some things, and I think Matt was like, let me know when you're ready. I think he was ready for the beer. <laughs> sure was. What are you drinking? Urban Chestnut? Fantasyland. Nice. Absolutely love it. So what... We got some... That's an IPA, right? Yeah, Midwest IPA, actually. Midwest Coast IPA, whatever that means. Mm, okay. I haven't the tried that one coast of the Mississippi. Right. <laughs> no coast. Um, we, we're going to start with uh, questions today. we got a, a few good ones that are f- going to be fun to talk about. You good with that, Matt? Let's do it. I like questions. Mud Puppy Ultras on Twitter said, Any signaling from the club or players on where the League's Cup will be prioritized for them? If they crash out in the first round, does the club have any plans to help us all endure the city soccer withdrawals until August 20th, um, which is the Austin Home MLS match? Good question. What do you think, Matt? 
the closest that I've come to any any kind of inkling on this is hearing rumors that Joachim Nilsson might see time in League's Cup. And where I go with that is more of making sure players stay fit, stay in form, and can can compete at their highest level when they have this break, so to speak. It's at the end of the day, it is a cup match. And so that's it's a different aura. Uh, players in the U.S. Open Cup had said that they get hyped for cup matches more so than uh, regular season matches, so to speak. And so mm-hmm. it's always exciting. I, I remember a lot of quotes from players for the U.S. Open Cup about how they they always view cup matches as a little more prestigious. They get hyped for it. So from a player perspective, I don't doubt that there's going to be um, every willingness to win and treat this like no different than an Open Cup or an MLS match. It's just It's a competition. But from how our lineups will be rolled out, to me, it's more the managing of the load is going to take, if not priority, then uh, paramount importance. And so you know that if you win, well, if you win against Inter Miami, you're going to be sitting top of the table going into the League's Cup, right? In that position, you have a real chance, real tangible chance at a lot of really interesting things. We're talking home field in MLS Cup playoffs. We're talking a CONCACAF Champions League berth. Uh, there's there's mm. payouts. There's a lot of things that can come from a successful MLS season. MLS seasons are also long, and we have a very difficult September ahead of us. So you're looking at the unknowns of a League's Cup from the group stages to all the matches that are going to come after that. How much are you willing to burn your guys in this, these group stages when I'm talking run out your A lineup in two straight matches, potentially more, as opposed to make sure that they are fully fit, fully regened for another ha- half of a season, essentially. That's where, I, that's where I have trouble making an argument to myself because to go back to the original question, no, the club hasn't really given an indication on where League's Cup sits as their priority in comparison to MLS. It's more so that we know how they spoke about us open cup we saw what happened with us open cup we saw a heavy rotation i have a tendency to think that there's a little bit of an encouragement from mls yeah to discourage rotation like we saw in the us open cup i was gonna ask you like what's your conspiracy level it's It's pretty high yeah yeah it's pretty high i have a pretty high conspiracy theory that mls has if not directly then very very heavy-handedly reached out to MLS clubs and said, you need to give us your best. We need to have these this competition be the showcase for this season. Like, yes, you have do your thing for MLS regular season, but we need your A game for these matchups because it's been it's been touted so heavily and there's been so much work that's gone into trying to make this the preeminent continental tournament and competition that the u.s clubs can participate in u.s canadian and mexican so this is this is the the time for mls that is they've been building towards and it probably is one of those things that really helped land them the apple deal to be honest like mm-hmm. the expanded playoffs that mls has introduced this year with the the best of three in the first round it's all designed to give apple more inventory for live matches that's been a massive driving factor in all of this in this league's cup tournament in, in and of itself, the number of live matches that Apple now has to tout, the number of additional households and eyes that they can sell season passes to because of this tournament 
not just for Messi, although now it's Messi is adding two Leagues Cup, but it's it's all of the Mexican households. It's all of the the American households who might not have tuned in just for MLS, but suddenly they have Liga Mekis and they have MLS. Yeah, I, it, you know, as you were talking, I was kind of thinking about, you know, what motivation would MLS clubs and MLS coaches have to play their A team when you mentioned all the benefits at the beginning of what you were saying there. You know, my ears really picked up, perked up when you said uh, CONCACAF Champions League. I have not yet considered that if we hang on to our spot, there's more spots this year. Like we could yeah. be playing CCL next year. And that gets me extremely excited. I love that tournament. Um, you know, but, you know, look at what MLS coaches and owners would say about Leagues Cup. Yeah, we're rotating because all those other things sound good, not to mention the money that you mentioned as well. And it's like, where's the money for this Leagues Cup thing? Like, is that going to be financially worth it? And that's going to be the measurement of how much weight they put behind it. But the league's response will be, well, look at the Apple deal we just landed. That's from League's Cup, you know, among other things. But don't forget what we did for you. Now I want you to do this. That's an interesting way to think about all those things combined and, and who will care about what. The thing that St. Louis City has going for them is their depth and their provenness mm-hmm. in success with that depth. Yeah. And so if you're Bradley Carnell, Lutz Fennishiel, you can make an argument very easily that you can run out the lineup that we ran against the San Jose Earthquakes and all the way through to Colorado and Toronto and say, this is our A lineup. We're, we're running with six or seven of these guys. And mm-hmm. then you plug and play maybe a couple other players and you can make that argument because you've proven su- successful with them. But in reality, your best 11 might include two or three of them. Interesting. It's an interesting, it's an interesting place that St. Louis finds themselves. But on the CCL, so one other thing on the CCL is – League's Cup is a cascade effect to CCL because there are additional slots available for the top three finishers in League's Cup to Con- well, it's now it's Concacaf Champions Cup, right? So oh right, yeah. For rebrand that. ourselves here with the with those three spots available. Let's say MLS teams finish one, two, and three. Well, that's just three additional MLS teams that aren't going to take slots from the regular season mm. standings, and so you you could be talking about if you if you have a double winner between League's Cup and MLS Cup then it's suddenly down to the runner-up. And if that was also a League's Cup uh, top three finisher, suddenly you're down to the third best team. So there's you're moving down the list of, of CONCACAF Champions Cup slots available because of League's Cup. Interesting. That's just beneficial to St. Louis City and where they stand in the regular season standings. Because right now, the target, given how the MLS Eastern Conference is breaking down, the target is to win the conference and you get an automatic berth no matter how you are overall in Supporter Shield standings. That, that's always been the case, is the conference champions get a slot. Now it could be easily conference champion minus one, just because you may finish fifth or sixth in the Supporter Shield standings, and all the teams above you have won other things. They've won MLS Cup, they've won League's Cup, gotten second or third. There's just so many paths now to the expanded CONCACAF Champions Cup that right now I see the regular season MLS as St. Louis City's best opportunity. So what you're saying is we should play the best 11 and have the game of our lives against Club America. 
<laughs> that way we kick out the Mexican team and give ourselves more slots for MLS Cup. This is 4D chess is what we're playing right now. The MLS teams need to gang up on the Liga MX teams. <laughs> that is that is that's five or six D, I think. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a step or two beyond where I was even taking it. So you're purposely Get talking about MLS teams knocking out Liga MX teams yeah. and then and then dropping down to their second or third team yeah. roster to play each other so that they can own those top three spots. So I, need, the end goal, I need five or six CCC slots the this end year goal for MLS. Is for MLS to have that. <laughs> I think they can have up to like nine or ten now. Is it that many? <laughs> I think so. Between US Open Cup, wow. uh, MLS, and Leagues Cup, it's insane. Wow. Well, let's get a USL team in there. There's been some good USL news this week. We won't yes. touch on it, but... It, it would be fun to talk about again. Um, yeah. I, I'm going to use this to talk about uh, this question and talk about it leads right into this. Matt Zollner on Facebook asked, let's play what if. What 10 do you see on August 20th? And, you know, against Club America, I think maybe you go your, your top 11. But I think for the most part, considering where we are in MLS Cup, uh, you play your hungry 11. You play the guys who maybe feel wronged by how much they've been sitting the bench lately, and you just put them in and let them run their hearts out and just go crazy to try to earn a spot back for MLS Cup in the final run and for the playoffs for that matter. So I do think that's what I would do no matter what, whether you think everyone should go out for the League's Cup in, as a St. Louis fan or whether you should just, you know, dump on the league's cup and just play backups. I would just play the hungry 11, whatever you think the most hungry 11 players are, you put them in. It's Austin FC. that were playing on August 20th. Oh shoot. I'm so sorry. That's what I do for the league's cup. That's my fault. <laughs> I knew where you were going. With yeah, that yeah. Yeah. So we should talk yeah. about August 20th, but what would you do for the league's cup Matt? before? Well, it we depends on, on what that. you're talking about. It depends on how all that plays out because I'm, I'm assuming that we're going to get bounced fairly early from league's cup. Um, I don't know why I'm just that's my it's my conservative assumption. I still have that going on that we that's our baseline is be conservative with your expectations. And if we get bounced, um, I I think, gosh, I don't I I don't know if I can name individual people because I'm I'm biased towards who's successful right now. Mm. That's a long time. To, to go there's a lot of matches Ooh. between then and, and and i need to hear from you too like i wonder if the loan did the loan rules change for league's cup that would be interesting mm-hmm. we need to look into that i think they baked in league's cup into most of the standard mls rules i think <sighs> the loans still apply that would have been cool to change that up a bit yeah it, it would have like schneider the- would have been cool to see schneider or some other guys johnny klein get another chance that would be nice the- <laughs> I'm I'm struggling with naming a ten, just because they're, they're the the big considerations are besides health. Health is obviously always a consideration. It's how far do we go in leagues cup? It's at any given time this city team has been so hard to predict because they'll throw guys randomly out there. They happen to succeed and they just keep it going. So if we get into a case and there's another question here that I think works well in this conversation, if we get into a case where we are bounced from leagues cup. It's entirely going to depend on who's proving themselves in training and whatever else happens between that gap of time. And so it could be a, a half roster turnover from what we saw in League's Cup or end of the Inter-Miami game versus who we see against Austin just because of who's earned spots in training and who's outperformed each other behind closed doors. And the question that parlays into this is from Scott Winter on, on Twitter, any chance we see first teamers on City 2 
in the if we were bounced early in that gap before the Austin game. And so if you get bounced early from League's Cup, City 2 has matches. There is an opportunity if to either schedule friendlies for City against other teams, which isn't outside the realm of possibility. Nothing's been announced yet, but you can easily see multiple teams in MLS don't have anything to do, mm-hmm. and so they're keeping busy with each other. There's that possibility. There's also a possibility we could see Next Pro be inundated with first-team MLS players who need that exact opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so there is a chance that we see first-teamers on City 2. There's absolutely a chance. The only other op- uh, the only other option to keep guys fresh and steady if, they, if we are bounced from League's Cup early is those friendlies behind closed doors. And since you already have matches garnered, you've, you did it last year with some of your first teamers that you're getting acclimated, why not? And if, if that's a league-wide, uh, league-wide pattern, all the better, I think. That'd be fun to watch because we have those games available on Apple. Yeah. And end of the day, though, it's going to be who rides in the first half of August in the best form. Because I keep going back to that San Jose game where it was supposed to be a rotation. It was supposed to be... Uh, getting guys rest and and going back to another roster. I, I'm I'm pretty sold on that. That that was not inherently meant to be the team that we run with for the next three games, hmm. but it worked. And so any given match, things could start working and clicking. Yeah. And suddenly you have Jake Nerwinski and Kyle Hebert on as your your left and right back. Suddenly you have uh, Jared Stroud as a right wing back and Kyle Hebert as a left wing back. And Parker, Joachim Nilsson, Bartlett as your three center backs. Our, our formation completely shifts in that direction. Lots of things can happen that makes it. I my brain doesn't do well with that many um, uh, unknowns, and so that's why I can't give a, a clear ten player outfield for August twenty. <laughs> I'm gonna stick with my. I said hungry eleven. He actually asked, "What ten do you see on August twentieth? Because I think clearly. Berkey starts so hungry well, 10 <laughs> when I asked when I asked Bradley Carnell because I was trying to get somewhat at this point I asked Bradley Carnell last week of not just about depth because that's the biggest question right but it's which players are your no doubt number ones your mm. no doubt top of the depth chart guys and he literally laughed and said Berkey <laughs> that's like it. that's it and he, it. he backtracked a bit and he's like Ben Lunt is great like he's he's come along he's, he yeah. he was played the niceties but then he mentioned tim parker eddie leuven and klaus and that's Fair. it like those are the only players names who came out of his mouth when mm-hmm. i asked for top of the depth chart players everything else is up for grabs if those those four players are healthy they are starting everybody else is fighting for their spot mm-hmm. i love it um and let's, I guess, let's answer his real question, which is, what ten do you see on August twentieth? With his, which is coming back to MLS. Is that what you were saying? You're not sure on That's that what one. I'm not doing. Okay, purposefully cool. Purposefully, what I'm not doing. Great. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Do you? I'll, okay, well, I'll give ten. I want to disagree with you then, actually, because I will say we're going back to like probably some mix of what we looked like on day one, because it's going to mm-hmm. be, you know, add in Nilsson. So I want to see Nilsson and Parker. And I hope we start looking at a three-back system with perhaps Hebert as the third center back. And then if Nelson continues to look good at left back like he did last night, yeah. um, and then Watts or Nowinski on, on, the, on the right, I'm fine with either or both. So, uh, you know, throughout the game. 
that's what I want to see. So that's a more fun answer to say. I think we start seeing that, and I, you know, hopefully, of course, Leuven's in the game, Blom is in the game, Klaus is in the game, and then we fill in who else is hot. You know, I look yeah. forward to that look. I'd be shocked if we don't get it between now and the end of the season. Yeah, before Keel Watts really came on with the right back, I had in my mind that I was exci- I want to I wanted to see Jared Stroud drop back into a wing back role because he played that against Chicago. He he's played a couple times as a mm-hmm. sub here and there, but he's he's predominantly been a left side player unless we've really needed him to shift over. I I do like the concept because of our center back depth of having the three center backs of Hebert Parker and Nielsen, and then. If Johnny Johnny Nelson, I think I'd be comfortable with him at left wing back. I'd be comfortable with Jared Stroud at left wing back. Um, if not Hebert as a center back, then Bartlett center. Hmm. Hebert as a left wing back. Give him a go. Why not? Uh, right wing back, Akil Watts at this point. I think he's I earned think so it. so too. Blome and Leuven in the midfield, the central midfield. I, I like Leuven with more freedom at the eight. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that he hasn't worked at the 10. I just... I think that he's able to do more to affect the game as a box to box. And we have more depth available at the 10. And so if you have, if you have that back five, if you have those two centrally and you just have three more players to kind of round out the lineup, the best three to me would be Klaus up top, AZ Jackson, and Indiana Vasilev. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm so I'm so sold on Indiana Vasilev and what he has to offer right now. I, I could see Nico Joachini plugging in there, but you need a you need a, a an AZ Jackson. You need number ten there to really work the ball. Maybe it's Indy in that slot. Maybe you have a four two 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 or a five, I'm sorry a five two three with Indy Klaus and Nico Joachini up top, and Indy is your ten or AZ instead of Indy. Yeah. And, and, like, do we see – there are a few people that are going to miss out here, and I think Indy Vasilev as an 8 or a 10 could disappear from from our radar, and would we see him fill in at the on the wing, which I think he would be totally comfortable with, if not excited about. Um, yeah. And then the other one is Alm. You know, where does Alm fit if he's not a striker um, or if we don't play a 3-4-3? Three, three? You know what I'm saying? Um, Alm might miss out. That's what's hard about the – diamond as well is that you know we don't we seemingly don't play Alm in the diamond unless he's a striker so you know a lot of people missing out it's I I don't envy Bradley Carnell with Nilsson coming in if we're going to give Nilsson a lot of minutes and we also keep Hebert in the game like he's got his work cut out for him that's why that's that exact reason mentioning Alm talking in D that's why I tend to say we're going to roll predominantly with a four-man backline, mm-hmm. and it's going to be Probably Hebert. Right. It's going to be Hebert, Parker, Nilsson, and one of Nerwinski or Watts, whoever's yeah. hotter. And then because you have Watts in the game, there's a lot of freedom. You can have him move up the field. That's an, essentially a right attacker that he can turn into, and Hebert offers that protection on the left side. You could drop that back into a three-center back and kind of shift over on the field, mm. but. It, it keeps an extra attacker in the game. It keeps an Indy or an Alm in the game when you're looking at Klaus and Leuven and AZ and and needing Jabulu Blom in there and Jared Stroud. Yeah. Like, there is an abundance of wealth in our, our attack, and I almost think we would shortchange ourselves to an extent if we drop back into three center back, utilizing wing backs, 
when we have all of these great attacking options who so far haven't seen time or we've seen effective in a wingback type role. The argument against that is, my goodness, we have so many center backs and really none are bad. <laughs> I thought John Bell did a great job in that last game. That's exactly. Yeah. Yarrow and Bell have both proven themselves as capable. Yeah. And so th this is where the roster movement is going to be important. Mm -hmm. Does Lutz make a move for yes. any one of these players to send out, whether it's on loan or whether it's a sell in the next couple of weeks? Because with all this abundance of wealth, he has an opportunity to reshape the roster given what he's seen players able to do. And, and I mean reshape in the sense of you've seen what John Bell can do in, in limited manner right now, but still, he, he was successful against LAFC in, in the 60 minutes or so that he was on the field. You've seen Josh Arrow, Lucas Bartlett, Kyle Hebert, Tim Parker, Joachim Nelson. You don't need that many center backs. Mm -hmm. You have John Nelson and Selmer Pedro as a left back on the roster. You don't need three left backs. Like... Move, this is where you move the pieces around the board and you recreate the roster to fill certain holes in how you see the formation shaking out. Yep. And I, there's too many center backs. Uh, Matt Zollner just asked another question right on time, Matt. And like, really good question because that's what I was thinking. He says, how important is Nilsson heading into the heavy load of games once uh, League's Cup is over? I'm going to say not important. Not mm. at all important. I think That's he's a hot take. It, well, maybe, but to be honest, like what we saw happen, like you said, against San Jose, we thought it was going to be, you know, just a resting of a bunch of people and then back to the norm. And then it became what works. Right. And yes, when Klaus is back, we play him. When Leuven is fully back, we play him. But if they're not back, are we super sad i don't know like are we going to get to that point with nilsen um i think with leuven i'm super sad personally but i think with klaus i was shocked i was shocked how much nico and the coaching staff and his support of all the players around him were able to get him to eight goals this season already while klaus was out in his absence i was I've been so impressed with that recovery to the point where I think we could lose about anyone and still coast to the playoffs at the end of this season, close to anyone, because we've now lost Klaus. We never have had Nielsen and, um, you know, we lost Leuven as well. Um, I'd love, we need them back. I'd love to see us at our 110% with all those players. And we might feel that way about Nielsen in the future, but right now, Listen, we have so many dilemmas on who to play. Everything we just said in the last 20 minutes, like we're okay without Nilsson. So um, to answer your question, Matt, I say, no, it's not a big deal if we lose Nilsson. He's not that important, but I think we're going to love him very shortly. <laughs> and I get what you're saying. He's, he's not, you're saying he's not that important in context of what our team has been able to do so far. Like the plug and play of Hebert and Bartlett and Yarrow and Bell has shown that we have center backs on the roster who are able to to run this system so effectively and 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 to be to be so capable of tracking back transition defense defending in space and working well with each other you're saying that you're saying that nielsen in context to everything else if we didn't have him we could still run with who we have and we'd be okay i tend to think that he's not 
as vitally important as well I, can't, I guess I can't name any single player at this point because we've proven able to win without Klaus and Leuven um, he's not as vitally important as we once thought hmm. but what he would be true is an upgrade at the position yeah I still think that as good of a job as Hebert and Bartlett have done the experience the leadership and the ability to defend in transition is so much more with Joachim Nilsson. What he was able to do, what we saw in highlights from Bundesliga uh, with Armenia Bielefeld, what we saw with Swedish national team, the reports that we've read, like his ability to read a game is so high level mm. that it's it's almost foaming at the mouth to think of what him and Parker can do with the form that Parker is in. Yeah, And, and it's that higher level upgrade at the position regardless of how deep we are and able to to compete and sustain these games i still think it would be such a big upgrade that i look i look forward to him having a heavy workload and let's not forget that the man scored two or three goals in bundesliga so what can he do in mls with you know looking at what parker and even hebert's got two goals i think yeah. Um, have done in MLS. What can you know a guy who scored two goals in Bundesliga do? That's exciting to think about, and think about yeah, set I, pieces. You know, going throughout the rest of the season too. That's, I I do agree with Jennifer though that uh, on YouTube that Berkey is our only yeah. irreplaceable player at the moment. <laughs> the the things that he's done and the things that we've seen Lunt uh, do with City Two, it's night and day. And like Carnell said, it's nothing against Lute. It's just the level that Berkey is on yeah. in this league is at a, at a different stratosphere. Absolutely. That, um, we went pretty long on that. Let me check the time here. Yeah, well, we, we've we don't have a lot of time. gone off the rails. We have, but uh, we better fit in the things that you really wanted to hit in the wind down before we ran out of time here. Well, and the idea of going deep into the LAFC match, I think is... Uh, That's gone. We're not going to go... We're, <laughs> we're not going to go super deep, but... It, um, we touched on it enough for a 3-0 loss. Nobody wants to dwell on the past. I had so much more fun looking forward to Inter-Miami. Like, all that stuff that I mentioned, I truly enjoyed understanding why this team is the way they are. Like, those, uh, those quotes in movies, like, why are you the way you are? The Michael Scott quote <laughs> on The Office. It's like, I understand why Inter-Miami is the way they are now. And it's, it's a series of unfortunate events alongside a design to build themselves around, around a missing player. And so I had, I had fun digging into that. The thing I wanted to look at for LAFC, though, is um, I saw a lot of comparisons to the Seattle match. And Bradley Carnell, I asked him about that because it was really the last time that they lost 3-0. It was very reminiscent from the fact that it was the only the, these two games were the only times that City has allowed three goals after 60 minutes. It was the only time that City had a worse than a minus two goal differential in any game this season. Hmm. It was the only times that City has had less than 48% possession and lost. And Santi pointed out to me when we were talking earlier that it was the subs that really drove a lot of those changes. So at Seattle, back in April, City subs at 64 minutes and Seattle scores at 65. LAFC, there was a triple sub at 69 minutes and LAFC scored at 72. So... That brings back the narrative that we had, we briefly discussed here and there about Bradley Carnell's ability to adjust tactically and the way he reads games in the second half against these high level opponents who it truly is a chess match. Mm. And you're seeing the game flow and you're seeing how you can affect the game, whether you're playing to defend or whether you're playing to score a goal 
and you just have the confidence in your players to defend. Because we talked, uh, we, were, we were talking with Stu that it seemed like Bradley Carnell was looking at this game like he looked at Seattle and a few other games as defending first and foremost. You don't allow a goal as opposed to trying everything you can to create opportunities. And you just let the let certain individual players do what they do to affect certain goals. Salio Pompeu had a lot of good movements with the ball, letting him individually run, but it's a focus on you're not going to be beat. And that seemed to be the driving force in both Seattle and LAFC until we made those subs. And then I, I go back to Hebert in LAFC that something something happened or, or he wasn't able to adapt well as a sub, whereas he's a he's a strong starter. Like hmm. there's no doubt. He, Hebert is a, a great defender when he starts. But seeing him sub in, this might have been his first sub appearance, if not the first and second, very few times. He he was off and his spacing was off. His timing was off. The communication between Johnny Nelson and uh, and Lucas Bartlett especially seemed off, whether it was going up for the header at the same time, uh, whether it was getting caught in midfield and getting bulldozed or whether it was just being left to dry, hung out to dry in the midfield on the right side, being overrun and having Jabulu Blom and Johnny Nelson be our only two players back. <laughs> that was that was awful to see. That's not surprising, though. I, I just want to push back on that a little bit because I will say, you know, the first goal that LAFC scored, I either Sifuentes really read the game well, which I do yes. think he's probably a, a, a heady, smart yes. soccer player, um, or I do think that's possible that that was LAFC's adjustment where they were like, any chance you get, just lob, it. launch it forward our forwards are going to be running. Someone's going to be running. And in this case, it was Vela. But Sifuentes, it didn't even settle the ball. It bounced no. off of someone, and he just launched it forward, and Vela was ahead. He was No one was going to catch him, you know, even at his age that he is. The man um, and, you know, his finishing skills are great. So my, my argument is only this, that that goal was especially good. It was tailor-made. It was a tailor-made goal against City, right? It was going to work yes. nine out of ten times as long as you finish, right? And then from that that point on, you know, St. Louis is trying to score and sending men forward. So then the counter becomes even more uh, viable and even more effective. So I'm just wondering if that's kind of what happened. I'm even wondering if um, at that point when Leuven came on and Stroud had come on, that Bradley was telling everyone to push forward, let's get this win, and then it just oh, yeah. backfired. I don't know. I think it's all oh. possible, but... No, I totally agree with that, and I definitely think that played into it because Kyle Hebert was so high up the field in every single one of these moments. Mm. And in the first goal with the Sufuentes pass, Hebert slipped. Like, there, uh. he, he, he slipped. I mean, that's, that's why he wasn't able to track back quickly in addition to being so high up the field. Vela had a perfectly timed run. Sufuentes has a, had a perfect touch. Vela controlled the ball on, on the recovery so well. Like, they, that was a, a picturesque pass mm. and sequence for LAFC. And Hebert slipping just it added all, all they needed to create their space. The other moments, I think it was just, it seemed like he was, he was caught in, in the wrong space, so to speak where he was he was trying to defend 1v1 in open space at or beyond midfield and that's just not where he should be as a center back trying to trying to attack the ball and then so far out on the right side and so mm -hmm. whether I, I go back to communication 
something between the fullbacks. It just it was broke. It broke down, and and I don't necessarily think that's anything to really dwell too much on because everybody has a bad game. Hebert had a bad game. Uh, had a bad few moments in the Nashville game. That was the only other time this year that I can really recall Hebert uh, being ineffective in his one v ones. And he was playing right back in that game. He had, he had shifted three different positions. So yeah. it's these awkward, odd moments where he's not hes not being given clear from the beginning direction that, okay, you're left back. Here's what your roles are. You can push high in this instance or no track back. Like mm-hmm. Carnell gives that on-the-fly instruction. You can tell very easily if you watch him or as a center back in, in alongside Parker. Like when he's not given those clear instructions, he's asked to move over and cover spots and be where he's not used to. That's where he breaks down. So I'm not reading too much necessarily into that for Hebert, but it's the transition defense in general that we have to shore up. And and it hit us with Seattle. That's why we moved into the three center back against Seattle. And it hit us in LAFC where your point is exactly what I thought, where mm. Carnell said, we need a goal. Put Leuven in, let Leuven drive the offense at the 10 and rely on Vasilev and Blom in the central midfield. But we were beat on the wings. And that's in the wings and the outside channel on the right on their right side for that third goal. But it, it wasn't anything that we could really affect. Sam Adenron wasn't as impactful as he had been the previous games. He wasn't able to work with Leuven very well, it seemed. AZ Jackson, he didn't have much going for him. We didn't have very many shot opportunities. It's just that the the flow of the game and the the, the way that the subs entered seemed disjointed to me. Mm-hmm. And so that's why when we were talking about uh, lineup predictions against Inter-Miami, there is that unknown when you reinsert Leuven into what we've been doing the past three games. There are, it's basically which version of City this year does Leuven play a part in? And which one can he be most successful in? Is it the one right after we we lost Klaus and we we found uh, our flow with Indy at the 10? Is it the one where... Leuven wasn't on the field and we found our flow with AZ at the 10 and Sam uh, as a second striker. Like what, where does Leuven slot in and what formation can we run that best utilizes him in addition to the other players who are in form from recent games? I've said it a few times and you know, I think more than any other time in this season, as guys get healthy, it is more and more dilemmas for Bradley Carnell, who to play. What does our team look like? You know, at first, I think we were relying on our designated players, and and then a whole team of no designated players looked so good against several MLS teams. Most of them weren't great, um, so maybe that plays into it. But anyway, you know, lots of dilemmas. I don't, I don't envy Bradley right now. No, not not at all. Um, I think that's all that I have from the LAFC game. We probably really need to wanna... wrap it up. Actually, do you want to do one more short thing? Well. I was going to give a little preview of the League's Cup, but we're getting into that next week. I think Santi and I can touch on that on Fallout, where we look ahead to what we can expect from after Inter-Miami. There's the All-Star game next week and then League's Cup. Do you want to end it on that fun, weird story (laughs) that happened today at the end of the week? I don't think it deserves a lot of time anyway, so let's do it quickly. (laughs) No, it's it's this weird thing where supporter sections in MLS have rules of what's allowed in that section. And it's because it's the supporter section that is, they they are the most fervent, the loudest. They're the, the focal point of celebrating your club, the most passionate fans that are standing, cheering, chanting, making all the noise for your club for 90 minutes. 
every single club that I've ever seen and, and all the stadiums, MLS stadiums that I've been to have had signs outside of their supporter section, their members only or whatever they call them in Kansas City that say opposing team gear is not allowed in the supporter section. There are signs that that very clearly say you can't wear colors, uh, player memorabilia, all this stuff. And so an email went out to the supporters section, uh, ticket holders for the Inter-Miami game that said, note, opposing team gear is not allowed in the supporters section. It's for City fans. For the July 15th match, this includes all messy jerseys, shirts, and gear. Miami, mm. Argentina, Barcelona, Paris Saint-Germain, Newell's Old Boys, <laughs> and Grandoli. All listed out. The St. Luligans, in their, in, as the largest supporter group in St. Louis, a general heads up, common courtesy, <laughs> tweeted out today, Sunday, be aware for Saturday, and they circled the message. Basically being the, the messenger of this, just so nobody runs afoul because, you know, it's, this isn't just the, even though this has been a rule in MLS stadiums and supporter sections that has been fairly obvious, like it's obvious why that's a thing. You're not going to allow um, Atlanta United fans to just come and buy tickets into your away section because that's what it gets to, right? It's not just, we're not talking about your your 12-year-old fan who you're introducing into soccer and saying, yeah. oh, you've been a fan of Messi for the past eight years. Come to a city game. His team is playing. It's not that. <laughs> it's, it's, we don't want uh, Inner Miami pink or we don't want Sporting Kansas City blue in our supporter section because that's where this narrative would go. It's not one-time exclusion for, oh, it's Inner Miami if you're messy. Imagine how that would go for Inner Miami opponents later in the season if it's like, mm. oh, you're fine as long as it's a messy jersey. You'd end up with, you'd end up with Barca, you'd end up with Argentina, Messi. It, the, everything would be messy oriented. The numbers, the infiltration of opposing fans wearing messy Argentina jerseys would be all over the place. Like it's it's a terrible precedent to set. And and this is my opinion coming from a, a, a supporter background to an extent. And so I didn't really have a problem with that. But the 276,000 views, the 110 quote tweets and the 53 retweets <laughs> as of our recording on Thursday tend to think, uh, give me reason to believe that some people have a problem with it. Goodness and some of the gracious. some of the responses, nerds, this is ridiculous. Uh, a lot of the things about you know, would hope this always applies for things like USMNT or Pulisic kits as well. And it's like, this has always, like, there's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, that's going on here. It's, it's a lot of um, assumptions that this is a new rule, that there's an exclusionary tactic at work here, a misunderstanding that this is the supporter section only. And I feel bad for the Luligan account that had to absolutely deal with this hmm. and and all of the, the vitriol from not just St. Louis, but there was opposing fans that really went in on <laughs> I saw a New England Revolution fan account that went in on this acting as if it was a new rule that St. Louis developed and it's all oh, why did we let this team in the league and that to me was it, it was an obvious uh, an obvious issue that there's a misunderstanding across the league of what actually goes on in your own stadiums that's interesting um, I don't I didn't join that Facebook group for a reason. Um, it's been a little bit like this all season. 
And this is just kind of seems like peak, you know, this is something was going to set it aflame and this was the thing, you know, surprise, surprise, it had to do with with Messi or something. Um, Right. And also surprise, surprise, it has to do with an MLS rule that is marketing related, that is anti-romanticism, you know, which which is a thing that I typically will will feel about these kinds of situations. But I just know that um, I've had multiple people text me and be like, what is up with this fan group? that aren't like massive soccer fans. They follow soccer. They follow USA. Um, and they're big fans. They got seats of St. Louis, but they're all like, what is happening in this Facebook group? And I think perhaps that's a sign that, you know, we all know when Twitter and Facebook and even Instagram starts getting out of control and no one's being real humans anymore. They've switched to this weird robot Um, I hate everything, social media, internet person. And so, you know, I think we can probably chalk it up to that. People need to calm down. And I think a lot of us, this is going to be a little snobby, and maybe I'm going to set these people aflame on my own here. But, um, you know, at STLFC, it was such a cool environment. It was, you know, 4,000 people at most on most days, you know, four to 5,000 people. And these people cared a lot. They were like... People who enjoyed having a good time, they might be super soccer nerds and this is the best soccer they can get in St. Louis at the time, which I believe is the case. And it was just such a cool environment. Uh, There were weird little fights, but they're always like such hipster little fights. Well, now we've got 22,000 people coming to a game every week. I've touched on this before. Guys, we got like former Rams fans coming to games. We got Battle Hawks fans. We got Cardinals fans who are expecting a win every week. You know, I mean, maybe not this season, but, you know, <laughs> these people are used to winning. And so they're freaking out about LAFC and a rotated lineup. Like, guys, like, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably the nerds that are used to that STLFC environment, that like romanticism of soccer and, and whatever. Have a good time. Um, we're going to cheer on our guys no matter what. Local, city, club soccer, even club soccer over country. Um, you know, these are the things that, that we care about. And all of this whatever is outside of that. You know, let's let's not get too caught up on on silly things. Let's have a good time despite a weird MLS rule or let's have a good time despite what people are saying in this in this Facebook group. And I just wanted to get on my soapbox for a second on that one. Yeah, and this rule existed for St. Louis FC. Like Oh, that's interesting. Section 8 over at the corner, you couldn't wear opposing co- like that wasn't that wasn't a thing people could do. Like it wasn't as overly advertised, but I think that just yeah. means the fact that this is a progression in exposure that we're experiencing, and we're dealing with it. At it's I mean this is the this is the negative to facing Inter Miami in the match before Messi comes is that we are the target of all of this right now because the, of just the scheduling and. Not Messi, Messi being announced the day after our game and debuted, unveiled the day after our game. Everybody knows he, he's training with Miami right now. Everybody knows he's joining. People are still probably somewhat expecting him to debut for Miami against St. Louis. <laughs> like all these things that there's not a level of of um, deep seated research that goes on to the predominant portion of our fan base. And that's not a problem. Like nobody, nobody needs to go as deep as you or I do like to, to truly enjoy the game. Like everybody enjoys the game on their own level. And some people enjoy the game to the level that 
They just want to grab a grab a jersey of their one favorite player and wear it to every single match they go to, hmm. regardless of team. Like they may be a Columbus Crew fan, and they just are a diehard Messi fan, and they just want to wear their Messi jersey because it's soccer, and they just want to wear a soccer jersey of their favorite player to a random soccer match they go to. Like that happens in St. Louis. There, that it's it's a. I think that it is a a minority of the fan base that that would apply to. But there are certain examples of individuals that that definitely does apply to and more power to you. But if you're that person, are you really going to be in the supporter section cheering, chanting, hollering for St. Louis City while they play Inter Miami? Or are you going to go? Are you trying to buy a ticket to watch the team that Messi's going to play for <laughs> just to be in the stadium and say, yeah. I watched I watched Inter Miami the day before they debuted Messi. I was in that stadium. I saw them. He might have been in the stadium. If you're that guy or girl or person, you're going to probably be in a seat somewhere else having bought a ticket and just just casually watching the game, maybe just walking the concourse. You're not going to be in the supporter section. This whole thing to me is a little bit of um, just a, a an overblown overreaction yeah. to something that's already there and probably won't even affect the people who are apparently having the issue and taking their frustration out on social media. Yeah. Just quickly, like, what is this rule for? There's two trains of thoughts here. Like, I might get angry that MLS is just trying to make sure that things look pretty, that it's marketed correctly, that it looks like the supporters section in one of their stadiums uh, is united for St. Louis, right? And it's a money thing. Yeah. It's It looks good on Apple Plus, right? Yeah. So that's one way to look at it. Is it only money? Is it greed? Is it marketing? Um, is it totally lacking in romanticism? Well, on the other hand, you know, perhaps a club wants their supporter section to be totally united behind their club. And so you could yeah. see it in a totally romantic way. Um, I think if you go to either extreme, you're going to be wrong at some point. You know what I mean? So I think we need to think of both of these situations and think, you know, are we going to get angry about one and happy about the other or both true at the same time? It's MLS, everybody. This is part of being an MLS. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's my preference, but I am saying this is what comes with the big stadium, with the Klauses and Leuvens and the millions of dollars. This is what we ask for everyone. And so sometimes we got to deal with a silly silly rule like this but perhaps we can look at it in a positive light rather than getting angry at each other we're all st louisans for goodness sake yeah and the introduction of messi is where it all changes we've talked about the progression of from st louis fc to st louis city the magnified eyes the higher numbers the the bigger stage this is the biggest stage that mls has ever experienced the the introduction of the greatest uh, the the arguably the greatest player in the history of the sport to their league and there are going to be probably growing pains at this level where having individual clubs deal with how to handle uh, how to handle fan response, how to mm-hmm. handle ticket sales. Because the a rumor that I saw on Twitter is that clubs are starting to discuss, should we make Inter-Miami games opt-in for season ticket holders to where they have a right of first refusal, but they could be sold at a separate package type of a thing. Hmm. I don't know how true that is. I just saw one comment hey. to me said, but it's an interesting notion. That, <laughs> that's the kind of world we're living in, though. Yeah. And so when you have these things about no messy, uh, no messy kits from any of his clubs, you're you're getting to an opposition player, even though it's a jersey of a team that you're not playing. You're still supporting a player who is signed to that team. 
and and that's you don't run into that problem when yeah, it's is not a single messy. entity or what you don't you don't run into that problem if it's not messy right like it's so funny you don't, you don't have honey mukhtar kits from teams he's played for previously running around out yeah. there you don't have uh, is, is miami gonna be mad that they can't wear klaus jerseys in their supporter section right now the interesting <laughs> so i just talked myself into the the funny thing is i wonder how david beckham was handled in this i know me too was it as big of a deal if the people had thing. beckham united jerseys when uh, the galaxy came to town i don't know it was a different world in mls at that point you know there are far fewer eyes on it wasn't yeah. So I don't know how that was handled. That probably is, be the only comparable. But it is interesting to throw the single entity thing into there because, you know, it's all MLS. You know, well, like who cares who wears what when? It, it, so there is that negative against sure. the money thing because MLS might love that there's a bunch of messy jerseys in the supporters section as a and whole. We, you know, we've already heard there, there were some comments on Twitter that some other clubs have, have are doing the same thing about Messi yeah. as far as no messy jerseys from any of his previously clubs. So it's St. Louis is the first uh, foray into this, but mm. you can expect to hear uh, oh, yeah. from other clubs as it goes along. And that may have an impact to the single entity of this is the league saying, this is the standard we're setting for mm-hmm. your supporter sections. You know, it could be that it could just as easily be all the clubs getting together and deciding amongst themselves. We're, we're united in this decision. Mm-hmm. It's just a drama of the week. It'll go away. Um, we'll all be able to enjoy Messi and MLS uh, from this point on, or, We'll enjoy fighting about Messi and MLS from this point on, which is fine hey, with me as well. <laughs> let's let's take it back to that League's Cup. I'm rooting for Messi and Inter-Miami to beat Cruz Azul so we oh, knock out the yeah. Liga Mekis yeah, teams. Yeah, yeah. And so MLS can have more spots in the CONCACAF Champions Cup. Perfect. That's how that's how we can root for Messi I'm, is you knock the Liga Mekis teams out of League's Cup. You get more spots for MLS. It makes it easier for St. Louis to qualify in their expansion season. Messi helps St. Louis. I'm in on this. This is the 5D chess we were all asking for. <laughs> all right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Uh, it's me, Phil Grooms. Someone got on to me for never mentioning my name. They're right. I never do. So I'm Phil Grooms. You can find Hello. me on Twitter and everything. Yeah, I'm, I'm here. This is my name. Uh, Matt Baker. Thanks for, for hanging with me today, man. Always a pleasure, Phil. Bye, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. See ya. Bye.